Welcome to Heal Yourself with the Law of Attraction. I'm your host, Tekla, and I'm ready to guide you on a transformative journey of holistic health and self-discovery using the power of the Law of Attraction. We've all heard tales of manifesting fortunes and jet set adventures, but this, this is a different journey. Here we focus on achieving abundant health, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. With the Law of Attraction, I've healed chronic pain, overcome a diagnosed mental illness, and reversed PCOS. We're all about realigning our energies to manifest our full potential. As we focus inward, raising our vibration, you'll be astounded by the ease at which the universe responds. Once you focus on yourself, the rest just falls into place. My goal for each weekly episode is to provide you with practical, easy to apply steps that you can weave directly into your daily routine. Together, we'll navigate the path to achieving your own health and wellness goals. So let's dive right in. Hello, my wellness witches. I'm your host, Tekla. This is Heal Yourself with the Law of Attraction. And today, I'm excited to report that I'm officially a Vespa girly. That's right. I went and got my motorcycle license, and now I'm able to jet around everywhere on my scooter. And it's fucking great. I absolutely love it. Parking for bikes is free in Sydney, so I don't have to pay for that, and I can find a space almost anywhere and squeeze right in. It is so convenient. I can dodge the traffic, and I'm legally allowed to use the bus and transit lanes. It's safe to say I am living my best scooter life. I'm absolutely addicted. I rarely ever use the car anymore unless it's raining because I'm not about to get wet for the sake of convenience. I will say the process of getting your license is a little intensive and requires a couple of days of in-person training and learning. But after that, you're free to scoot about wherever you want for a few months before you have to go back and get your permit. The bike I have now is quite heavy. It's an ideal setup for two riders and is a little bit much for me to just get around on, but it's definitely doing the job for right now. I have done a bit of investigation on what else is out there, and I'm really excited to invest in another smaller scooter when the time is right. You better believe I already updated my vision board because that's how I roll, and my needs have changed because now that I live in a big city, I don't need a luxury huge SUV. It's not really fitting of my lifestyle right now, so that got replaced by a cute little pale blue Vespa. I need something to easily get me to the beach in the summer and something that helps me find parking effortlessly near work because it's a nightmare finding a spot near the bar. And all of those needs are better served by a scooter right now. I will have access to a car if I need it, but I'm living the scooter life from now on. I'm posting all about my scooter adventures on Instagram if you want to follow and check it out at Heal Yourself with L-O-A. The link for that is also in the show notes if you're interested. Every week, I like to practice gratitude for something I'm thankful for in my life. And this week, I am grateful for this new gluten-free cookbook I found. There's a gluten-free bakery near my house in Sydney that I'm obsessed with. They freshly bake gluten-free croissants, which is an absolute rarity. If you're in the gluten-free community, you know that's just not really a thing. Anyway, the owner of that bakery published a cookbook for all the baked goods that they make in the store, and I am pumped about it. I love baking, and that hobby has kind of taken a back seat since I moved home. Now I'm excited to get back into it and start working through all of these recipes because I love a sweet treat. 
I'll post a link to that in the show notes too if you're interested because it also makes a really great gift for a gluten-free friend. The recipes are pretty simple too, so that's good. And that's what I'm grateful for this week, friends. The delicious treats that are on the horizon for me. And on that note, let's get into today's episode. And this is part one of a two-part episode, which will air this week and next week. And I want to say this episode almost didn't come out today because it's been a crazy couple of weeks for me, but I'm dedicated to you and the podcast and I didn't want to leave you hanging. I wanted to share my journey with my eating disorder treatment and how the law of attraction was a key component in my recovery. The reason this will span two episodes is because I've held off on publicly talking about this and what I went through for a really long time. And now that I'm ready to share that in detail, I think it deserves not to be rushed and condensed because I know a lot of people are struggling with similar issues. So first, let's cover the trigger warnings because this topic is highly sensitive for some people. Today, we'll be talking about eating disorders, specifically restrictive eating, binge eating, bulimia, calorie counting, excessive workouts, weight gain, and weight loss. If you're not ready to listen in today, then this is your opportunity to switch this off for now and come back when it's right for you. I also want to let you know that there are several resources for you in the show notes if you're struggling with similar issues and you'd like to seek support. Let's start from the beginning. I think the first question that comes to people's minds when you talk about eating disorders is, when did it start? For me, that was always a challenging question to answer because I feel like I've struggled with eating and body image my entire life. Honestly, for as long as I can remember. There is one distinct memory I have as a child, probably under eight years old, where my family and I were at a buffet. I had obviously eaten a bunch of different things throughout the night from the buffet, and then I wanted dessert. My parents were clearly concerned about the amount of food I'd already ingested because I remember them saying something to me like, you can have ice cream, but don't make yourself sick. That's not really that outrageous of a statement, right? It's something that happens with younger children. They gravitate toward all of the sweets and the candy, and that's something they really want to consume so they can eat too much of it. I remember saying something like, I won't, I won't, and going to get a bowl of ice cream. I think it was soft serve, actually. Later that night, I remember being sick, vomiting. And it was because I just ate way too much food in such a short amount of time. I don't really remember any other details of what was going on at the time for me, or while I felt the need to eat so much to the point of being physically sick. That's all I remember from that night. But obviously, there was something underlying from an early age that made me want to numb the pain. Again, I don't know to this day what the pain was for sure. I have a couple of ideas, but it's really just a wild guess at this point, and I don't even know if it's factually correct. That was 22 or more years ago now. Anyway, I think my parents were aware that I had this tendency to overeat, but didn't really know how to help me deal with it. Remember, at the time, mental health and resources around supporting and managing disorders weren't readily available like they are now. People weren't as aware of the signs and symptoms and what they needed to look out for or any of that. It just wasn't talked about, and it was skimmed over in school. The knowledge and education was just missing for the most part. I didn't know enough about what I was going through to raise it with my parents, 
and they didn't know enough or see enough to understand it either. A lot of what was going on with me was an internal struggle, which is super hard to identify and navigate as a parent of a child that doesn't talk about their feelings. Emotions were never discussed or explored, and we never learned how to really process anything effectively at school or at home in those days. And this wasn't just about my childhood or my parents. It's a collective and widespread issue for young kids in school, even now. And especially for our parents' generation, who had absolutely no way to learn or practice mental health either. I am 30, and when I think about how my parents were raised, it was by my grandparents, who were just trying to keep themselves alive in those days. And you might hear that and laugh, but I mean that literally. My grandparents lived through one world war, and some of our grandparents lived through both. Mental health was unheard of then, and they raised their children the best they could with what they had available. And back then, it was solely about keeping the family and the children alive and physically healthy. So seeing this potentially harmful behavior I had developed, my parents encouraged me to try out a variety of sports and physical activity. They never, ever restricted what I ate, which was absolutely the right decision. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't allowed to eat sweets for dinner instead of real whole foods, but I don't remember ever being told that I actually had to stop eating. It was very much an eat-everything-in-moderation type household, which is ideal. No food was demonized or off-limits. They simply identified a need for me to live a more balanced, healthy lifestyle, so that was the driver behind getting me into activities. It allowed me to move and to be part of a team and to have fun. And I absolutely loved it. And I loved it so much that I quickly became highly competitive and obsessed with sport. It was something I was just naturally good at growing up. I wanted to be the best at whatever I did, and I often was, or at least a really high performer in most activities. I was on the swim team, the diving team, the netball team, the soccer team, the gymnastics team. I played flag football. I did life-saving. I did just about everything I could. It was a great way to spend time outside and making a ton of friends and just channeling my energy into movement. And then at the age of 13, I found rowing. And I was good at a lot of things, but I was great at rowing. And that was the start of a whole new part of my life. From that moment I joined the team, I just knew that I loved it. I went to a very privileged, private, all-girls school in Sydney. And because of the caliber of the school, the coaches weren't just your run-of-the-mill coaches. They were Olympians. Once an Olympian, always an Olympian. I was taught that, so I will never refer to them as ex-Olympians, although they weren't actively on the team anymore. It was an amazing experience. Australia is widely known and recognized for their summer sports at the Olympics, especially in swimming and rowing. We typically dominate in those sports, so I was fortunate to have the best of the best teaching me. And it's not a surprise that with that kind of leadership and coaching, I quickly rose to the top and ended up rowing at an elite level from a young age. I joined a club outside of school so I could row even more, and that was really intense. Over my high school rowing career, we won almost every single time we raced. 
I easily have over 50 medals from that time, including both state and national championships. It was a really wild time for me, and I was 100% committed to it. I didn't really have a normal high school experience. I trained every day except Sunday, and I raced at the Sydney Olympic rowing course almost every weekend, which was an hour away. Rowing consumed my entire life. I didn't really go to parties, or if I did, I would have to leave early to go to training in the morning. And you're probably listening to this going, this sounds overwhelming and way too intense for a teenager. But I can assure you, I could not be stopped. It was my whole life, and I loved every single part of it. In my senior year of high school, I knew I didn't want to stop rowing. And college or university life in Australia is nothing like in America. I had seen friends get scholarships and row overseas for university, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I did. I was offered full scholarships to 15 universities around America. I went on an official visit to five of the 15 because that's the NCAA limit. And I decided on Fordham University in New York City. Over four years, that scholarship was worth just over a quarter of a million dollars. It paid for everything. My food, my housing, all of my books and supplies, my rowing team gear, all of it. It was the biggest achievement of my life to date, I would still say that. It was also, unfortunately, the beginning of a very disordered period of my life in terms of eating behaviors, body image, and self-harm. I'm going to state that the rest of today's episode will recount my experience and my opinion about my time in that program and it is solely based on my own memories and personal recounts of the events that occurred. This is my truth about what happened. Shortly after committing to that rowing program, I had some time off before heading over to the U.S. The high school year in Australia ends in December, and college doesn't start until September in America. During that time, I was just trying to blow off some steam after graduating, and also trying to ensure that I stayed fit enough to start up again with a new team. During that off period for me, a couple of things happened that really impacted my mental health. I ended up getting stress fractures in a couple of my ribs from rowing. That can happen to rowers who get locked up in the back in the chest, and it constricts the ribs from expanding and contracting as you breathe intensively in a workout. I also got mono, or as we call it in Australia, glandular fever. I couldn't stop sleeping. I was so tired for months and months. I was exhausted, and I was getting increasingly more stressed about that because I knew I had to be training, and I couldn't. And eventually I turned to a familiar coping mechanism for me in the past, which was food. I gained a lot of weight before flying over to America. I was still relatively in shape for an athlete, but I was nowhere near peak condition, which is really where I wanted to be when I was joining a new team. And when I got to college, I got my ass handed to me the first two weeks of training. It was the biggest slap in the face ever. And that rocked me to my core because suddenly I was among other really high-performing athletes, some of them who were also on scholarship, and I was at the bottom of the barrel. I felt like I was back at square one. And I soon learned that everything I was measured on and tracked on in Australia in terms of rowing metrics, were different in the U.S. For context, and this is important, 
In Australia, there's a really big emphasis put on rowing technique, which is specifically how you go through the stroke and put the oar in the water. In the U.S., I found the emphasis to be almost completely on your strength and your power on the rowing machine. So essentially how fast you can get from A to B, not in a boat, on land, on the rowing machine. At university, not only was the emphasis on your time on the rowing machine, like how fast you went from A to B, but also that that time was weight adjusted. And weight adjusted meant that if you were above the average team weight, then seconds would be added to your time. If you were below the average team weight, seconds were subtracted from your time. So your ranking on the team was highly, highly influenced by your weight. Some more context for you. In rowing all across the world, there are two weight classes. There are lightweights and heavyweights. To classify as a lightweight, you need to be at or below 130 pounds, which is 59 kilos for women. Everyone else above that weight is classified as a heavyweight or a normal rower. At university, the team average weight was combined across everyone, lightweights and heavyweights. So the regular team rowers were automatically disadvantaged, even though we would never race against a lightweight team. And that's never happened to me anywhere I've ever rowed in my life. And it's not something I expected to happen to me at college. I'm sure you're starting to see what's happening here. I went from a supportive, fun, exciting, and competitive team environment in Australia, where weight was not at the forefront of discussion, to an environment where I learned super quickly that it was better for me to be as light as possible from the get-go. We were solely ranked on our metrics from the rowing machine and our weight. There was no part of that ranking that included technical expertise or anything actually rowing related. By actually rowing related, I'm referring to a common saying in the rowing community, which is that ergs don't float. An erg is a short name for the rowing ergometer. It's a rowing machine. And it's widely known that you can be an absolute star on the rowing machine, but when you get into that boat, if you don't have good technique, you can quickly become a big barrier to the efficiency and speed of the crew. That's why I had been taught and raised to master my technique to ensure excellence in that area because the time scores on the ERG were very much secondary. As we know now, that wasn't the case anymore. The changes in culture, atmosphere, coaching, the team, and being halfway around the world from my family and support system created the perfect storm. All of those factors triggered old coping mechanisms within me. And that's really when I started to adopt destructive, harmful eating behaviors and habits that would rule my life for the next 10 years. Before we end today, I want to clarify that there are so many things that contribute to the development of an eating disorder. Your childhood, your genetics, your learned behaviors, your environment and conditioning, society, and the experiences you have along the way. There are a combination of biological, psychological, social, and environmental factors that play a role. I am not saying that the development of my disorder was solely caused by my experience in college. However, it absolutely, without a doubt, in my opinion, contributed to the harmful behaviors I adopted due to the position we were put in and the way the program was designed. That's a good spot for us to stop today, friends. 
Again, please know this is a difficult topic for almost everyone to discuss. If you need additional support, please see the show notes for some resources and reach out to a licensed healthcare professional if you need to. I'll see you back here for next week and we'll get into part two. That's all for today. Peace, love, and mung beans. Bye.